Hey, what's up, guys? Another episode of Eastman's Elevated here. So today on the podcast, I've got on my buddy, Pat Nowak. So Pat Nowak, he's he's one of the first guys I met when I moved to Montana. And, and he was just so passionate about hunting. And he was born and raised in Montana and had such a knowledge base for, for the country around here. And, and, and then, you know, he's always taken advantage of, of all the seasons, whether it's bow season or rifle season, and he always goes hard. And, and he's a heck of a shot, you know, always been a heck of a shot with his bow. And then his rifle shooting, he's just taken to the next level. He's learned as much as he can about being proficient with his rifle, um, just a huge knowledge base. But um, he, he's always hunting public land. He's always going for it, um, always self-guided. So just a really fun conversation with Pat um, to be able to sit down and kind of share some of the stories we've had over the years, and then share some tips on on hunting elk and hunting high-pressure units. So um, this is a fun one for me. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Yeti Coolers. Um, so Yeti, they have their uh, cups, their Rambler and their Tumbler. Um, they do such a great job of keeping things cold and keeping things warm. I know for me, I have my coffee in the morning and and uh, I can leave for three, four hours, and it's still warm in my cup when I get back. Um, they just do a super job of insulating, you know, to keep your drinks warm and keep your drinks cool. And and, and then their coolers. I just got uh, my first Yeti cooler. Um, I'm just super psyched on it. I mean, it's it's crazy how it's going to change how I hunt. It's just, you know, it can keep ice longer, which we all know. But now, like a block of ice, I can go on a week-long adventure, and I don't have to worry about my ice melting or keeping my food refrigerated and so it's really going to help me out on some of my adventure hunts where I'm hunting out of my truck so I'm just really excited to use it and then it doubles as a bear proof container so you put a lock on either side and then you're legal for all national forests to store your cooler in the back of your truck or at your wall tent and bears can't get into it so I think that's a really cool feature that Yeti does so thanks to Yeti for sponsoring the podcast. Um, over there at the Eastman's office. So that new Eastman's bow hunting journal is just coming out now. Uh, some really cool articles in that. And then the next one to come out will be the Eastman's hunting journal. Um, I have an article that I, that I've written for that one. So pretty excited for that to come out as well. Um, make sure you guys go check out our YouTube channel at, at, uh, Eastman's hunting journal. Um, there's just a ton of information on there. Uh, we got the rewarming drill. They're, they're always doing educational films about different products and about different techniques. And then, you know, there's also different hunts on there you can watch. And that'll link you right into Beyond the Grid as well. So check it out. Eastman's Hunting Journal uh, TV on YouTube. Um, and with that, let's get this thing rolling. Um, Eastman's Elevated, Pat Nowak. Here we go. Okay, I'm here with my buddy Pat. Pat, thanks so much for doing this with me, man. I appreciate it. Yep, you bet. No problem. Yeah, right on. Well, uh, yeah, you sure had a good hunting season. So um, I guess we met each other. You were the first guy I really met in Montana when I moved out here at about 20 years old and met you. And I think we went hunting the very next day. And I think we got into a grizzly bear the very next day. And um, <laughs> But but you were, you were always hunting elk and always passionate and hunted elk around this valley a bunch. And then you moved away for college for a few years and then moved back and, and now have your business here. Um, heck of a bull you put down this year. Man, oh, man. Yeah, you know, it's uh, finally got her done. It's a 20-year passion to finally put one on the board. Yeah. Well, and you've, you've killed a bunch of good bulls with your bow and with your rifle, but that one you killed this year was so next level. Just a giant bull, um, as big as they get. Yep. No, um, super good bull. It just uh, put everything together and all the years of training and hard work and knowing where to go and 
where not to go. And, and uh, it's tough passing on different bulls, but I didn't have the opportunity to pass on anything because it's the only elk we saw that day. But, uh, a lot of years in the work and uh, put all the skills of glass in and knowing what to do and what not to do. And, and it finally just came together. Of course, probably 95% luck, but we'll take it. Well, yeah, well, you create your own luck and then capitalizing on opportunities and seeing a big bull and then just getting everything right. So you so you killed him late rifle and you killed him in a spot that you hunt quite a bit up and through there, at least those drainages quite a bit, right? Yeah, you know, it's it's a place actually I bow hunt more than anything here in the last five or six years. And and the only reason we found this bull is because we knew some little pockets that he, he that he liked to hang out in and and uh, we went to go glass, and we spent a bunch of time glassing spots we had in the past and couldn't turn nothing up. And so we just said, well, you know, we might as well go try a different spot and see if we can't make this one work. And went after it and hiked to a vantage point, and lights came on, and he just happened to be there that morning right at daylight. And, and he was the only elk we saw all day, but he was a good one. It took us five and a half hours to get to him after we glassed him up, and he didn't move 30 yards all day just in a perfect little bedding spot and got there and got him killed oh wow so so then you were hunting spots that had been really good for you during bow season where there was a bunch of rubs in there you had got into rutting bugling bulls in and through there and so you knew these spots from bow hunting and then you went in rifle season and of course you, you know you're so good and diligent and disciplined at grabbing your vantage points we learned this long ago and it doesn't matter bow or a rifle it's out there early and get to your spot where you can see and we we've, we've always we kind of we hunt the same style, you know, and well, we grew up hunting together, but we use our glass a, a bunch, and we hiked to good vantage points and then glass. So you got to that good vantage point before light, like you were supposed to. Lights came on, and you watched a giant bull cruise through a meadow. Was he feeding in there? You watched him bed down, or how'd you catch him? Well, right at daylight, we actually caught him coming out of the uh, out of the timber in a creek bed, and this opening is. It's only like 30 yards wide and 30 yards long. It's a small little opening, and, and we caught elk in this pocket during archery season and just happened to catch him starting into that opening, and and uh, I caught him with my binoculars, and my son was looking through the spotting scope, and I was like, man, give me the spotting scope. i got to see this thing. And so he's about five miles, five and a half miles from our vantage point, and threw the spotting scope on him, and I 10-second look, and it's like, man, that bull is just massive, and, and – uh, had to go for him. We had a bunch of rock shoots to get through, and we worked our way over there. About two and a half hours into the stock, I could see the bull bedded on this little ledge, and I seen these horseback riders riding right underneath him, and thought the whole thing was blowing, and, and I kept watching the bull and watching the horseback riders, and as they made their way underneath him, he just watched them. He just laid up there and completely asleep, and they had no idea he was there. They rode right underneath him, and we watched him for about 10 minutes, and oh man, it's still game on, and we made our way over there. It took us about another two, two and a half hours and got over there and seen the bull and got set up on him across the canyon. And uh, and I had my son, you know, make sure he got up and got into the timber. And Keith was watching him, my son, and and uh, said, man, you know, got to make sure it's the right bull. He got in the timber a little bit on us and we we're a little nervous about shooting the wrong bull just because there wasn't a lot of openings on that hillside. And he worked through there and Keith was calling it out. He said, man. He said, Dad, I see them long tines. I'm like, watch the body, not the horns. And you know, it took me, I had to do the same thing. I had to tell myself, whoa, you gotta pick a spot on this thing and stop looking at that rack. And he came out, stopped in a little opening and just hammered him. And you know, he didn't even take a step, he just tipped over and fell off the hillside. And 
man, it was just after that, I was like, what have we done? You know, it's just, I could tell it was just a massive bowl. So, Oh man, so cool. It was a massive bowl. Like I say, as big as they get and, and just a huge frame on them too with huge, I think the beams, I think you said were 57, 58. I just got that thing in my hands for the first time the other day. What a stud of a bull. But doesn't it seem like, um, you know, with, with more pressure during bow season, more pressure during rifle season, it seems like these elk aren't in such vintage elky spots. It seems like these big bulls, like the bull you killed had to be seven, eight years old, I'm, I'm guessing. At least he was full maturity. Yeah, he was yeah. He was actually aged at nine and a half years old. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he's a year or two from, you know, starting to go downhill or maybe this was his best year ever. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, he's an old bull and they're just not where they were five years ago. They have changed to where they where we've always hunted them in the past. And for an elk like this to be in a place where I bow hunted elk, you know, it just, it's never been the same. I mean, mm -hmm. you just, you always used to bow hunt in one spot and rifle hunt them late season on in, you know, little pockets back in where they get pressure to and, and they hide out for rifle season. And this year was just different deal. Every place I looked, you know, that was good rifle spot that we typically hunt just couldn't turn up a good bowl and just couldn't make it happen. And, and here he was in, in a, in a rut spot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like we've talked in the past, you know, and you always get these elk that you say a big mature bull can live on two blades of grass and a sip of water. <laughs> and it's no kidding. I mean, when they can live on a little opening, he had this whole little opening, you know, it was just littered with, you know, droppings and places he'd been. And he just, he just lived there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had no doubt that this bull lived there until we shot him and he left the, you know, rut got over and he left and he found a place to live and he stayed there. Mm -hmm. I, I truly believe that that bull was living in that area for a while. Yeah. Well, and they, they get so beat up and run down during that rut, you know, and then after that rut, that post rut, that's the toughest time to hunt them. And, and that's when we get a chance to rifle hunt them out here in Montana. But you're right. They just go into a hidey hole where they just don't get bothered. They don't get pressured. And then they just live in there and they're just trying to recoup and put on some more weight for the winter. But uh, the toughest season to hunt them. And yeah, what I, what I meant by that, like finding them in those hidey holes is like, uh, it's not the same spot, like to look over a vintage elk spot with a bunch of big elk meadows. Like it seems like there's guys in there and especially where we're at general rifle season that those bulls get chased out of there. Or younger bulls get shot up and these bigger bulls, it just seems like when you're hunting them, you got to look in, in, in spots that are steep, rough, and rugged, that are avalanche shoots. And, and like you said, like that little tiny meadow he was living in, they don't want to live on a big, open, wide face, especially not a big bull. And like this winter was tough for us because we didn't get any weather. It was a, it was a warm winter. You know, it didn't, we didn't get the cold to push the bulls down or push the bulls out or do any of that. But um, it just seems like they're finding the bigger, more mature bulls are by themselves Maybe with the bachelor crew, but that seems to come later in the season too. But by themselves, and they just find a little hidey hole with just like out of pressure, like a little meadow they can feed in and survive, doesn't it? It does absolutely. They, um, it seems like these these big mature bulls. You might see them batch up with one or two bulls during rifle season. It's not till it seems like you know the sh drop, you know, end up on the wintering grounds that you see these batchy herds of thirty or forty bulls. It's just a big mature bull. In the last five years, it just seems like they really spend a lot of time with a bull here and another bull there. Mm -hmm. They do. They find a hidey hole off the beaten path, and they just absolutely live there. Mm -hmm. And they are. They're in the hidiest little, deepest hole. If they have a little bit of water and a little bit of grass, I think they just live there. Mm -hmm. 
I don't I don't think that they move around as much as they do, you know, the rut, of course, and, and even on the uh, winter ranges. Mm-hmm. I, I think they just they, they figure it out, and they know five, six weeks, they just are going to hidey-hole up and not move. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and like you say, like the last five, ten years ago where we'd find elk during that season, they're not there anymore. You don't see them in there anymore. Like even our, some of our backcountry spots, like you remember yours and Stacy's bull that you shot off, off that one creek drainage and those openings up that spine in there that I helped you pack out, like that was a go-to spot, you know, and it, and it's still a good spot for bulls and a good spot for elk, but it seems like they get pressured out of there where now this drainage in this spot that was so good to you and I is good for me and bow season in there, a bunch of bow seasons, and I know you bow hunted it, and, and then rifle season was really good uh, good to us in there, but good luck trying to find a bull in there now. Like you just don't see many in there. You know, they, they just find other places. They, they feel the pressure in there and any place that you have an access point that guys can get to and you can get a horse trail to like, I I don't know. You don't see those bulls there the same as you used to. At least it seems that way to me. That's absolutely true. It's hundred percent true. Um, you know, it's funny because clear back when we first met, we packed out those first two, you know, first two bulls off that ridge. We actually named that ridge after Stacy, named it Stacy's Ridge, and just to keep all the the locals from knowing what we were talking about. And, That's right, and <laughs> keep it that way. And um, but no, it's um, it's become just a high pressure spot. And yeah, it used to be a go to spot. Man, you could go there and find bulls and pick through them and go. God, I'm looking for a big mature one, and you'd have a six, seven day hunt in there, you can see 30, 40 different Exactly. Bulls. Yes. And that is absolutely not the case. Now you're just, if you catch a, you know, batch you heard of bulls or a single bull on it during rifle season, you're like, wow. A few bulls in the whole drainage, not exactly even just right. Stacy's Ridge. Stacy's Ridge has a little meadow in the bottom end. It's a Nike swoosh too. I'm always looking in the Nike swoosh there, but yeah, no, they just don't, you know, I think they pressured out of there. That access is too close and it's still like, it's a good hump to get back in there. You got to do some climbing and do some miles or if you're a horse guy, you got to buck some trail to get in through there and then to find the vantage points and learn how to hunt it. But yeah, it just seems like they just don't hang in there as much anymore. I don't get them get into them as much bow season in there. I know that every once in a while I find one, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, even bow season, um, I uh, I bow hunted that place a couple of times this year, and and we actually left it and went and found different spots, and um, it just it just wasn't good at all. You know, we always used to know that that was perfect to go hunt second or third week. It was always good second or third week of archery season, and that's not the case anymore. It's just it's hit or miss mm-hmm. and you get in there and it, you know, it's a lot of fun to go chase them around, but um, you really got to catch them in there for a couple day window and that's it. And it seems like they just move out. Mm-hmm. It's too high pressure. There seems like there's a lot of people getting in there, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's a good seven, eight miles to get in there. Mm-hmm. Guys pushing hard and they get in there and hunt them and push them around. But yeah, it's not a guarantee anymore. Yeah. Sure. Well, and, and to be successful in any elk hunting, you know, elk just, they move so much and they travel like a different circuit of feeding meadows. And it, it just seems like elk, like you hardly ever, like, well, I guess your bull, you found one bull and that was, he was living in there and that's where he was. But it, it seems like you find one elk and you find more, like you find a spot that the bulls like, you're going to find more bulls in there, especially in September. You know, very rarely do you run into one group of cows and a bull, you, you run into a party or a rut fest in and through there. And, you know, I think when you're hunting bulls, you got to just, um, you know, you got to keep the mindset. And especially, I mean, we're talking a general season, high pressure unit that anybody can have a tag in, but 
you know, I, I think the way to go about it is just like you do where you keep a good attitude and every day you're headed someplace new and you, you go into that drainage, you go check Stacy's Ridge, you check that drainage, see if there's any elk in there. The party may be going in on there. You know, I know two years ago it went off in there pretty good. You know, at least that's what I heard. I didn't get into it myself, but you know, you just, you hike into there and if you don't get them in a day or two, you know, then you're in the next drainage and you're in the next spot and you, you just keep finding those vantage points and keep glassing until you can locate them. It seems. I absolutely, I think you need to be prepared to push. I mean, if you, if you're not willing to cover country and glass and keep relocating elk, I mean, you're going to run out of elk to hunt on this mm -hmm. general tag and, and that's anywhere around, the, around home here, you know, within mm -hmm. hundred miles, everything's general tag and if you're not willing to keep pushing and move them to the next drainage or next vantage point to find a batchy herd or, or a group that's rutted up bow hunting season i mean you're going to run out of elk and you're going to run out of elk quick well because they get pushed or they get mm -hmm. moved and and it's not that they just leave the country it's just you know they get bumped into the next drainage and you have to be prepared to pick up camp or move with them mm -hmm. i mean and that's if, you, if you're going to stay on a you know a longer than a four or five day elk hunt in the backcountry you've got to be prepared to move i mean Yes. And follow elk around. That's just they're high pressure public land elk. Well, and you, you, even the best elk spots have zero elk in them a lot. <laughs> you know, like Absolutely. You, you, you go into a spot that's money that's been the best elk hunting you've ever seen in your entire life and sign all over, but you miss it by one week. You miss the timing of it. And that goes for bow or for rifle season, but you miss the timing and that place can be empty. You know, like all you hear is crickets yep. well, or you go in there and you're into the biggest rut fest you've ever seen. And like, I try to tie it to timing, you know, at least in the bow season, like you were saying, second week, it's good in there. Yeah. We always used to know second week it was good in there and, and it varies a little bit but you can kind of get your timing of where those elk are at and which drainage and then and then every five years you'll just throw a wrench in the mix and your timing will be off in every spot but yeah that's what you know when i was hunting a bunch of different spots down and through here i had the the timing of where it was good first week where it was good second where it was good third where it was good fourth and if you didn't go into those spots during those weeks you didn't see many elk in there so it's uh even the best elk spots in the world don't have elk in them all the time like it's a matter of having a net work of those spots that you can go hike into and look at and then find where the party's at yeah absolutely i mean if you don't have a backup plan for the backup plan for the backup plan you're in trouble you're not elk you're not elk hunting, no <laughs> and uh you know and things have changed now we there's a couple of spots we've always hunted and and had good luck and we knew that we knew the pattern and and this year i i uh helped an outfitter friend of mine do a little you know three week forward or uh, sorry a four day deal and, and um there's spots that we hunted on certain weeks and it was no good um, mm -hmm. that we'd hunted in the past for the last 20 years. And I kept telling them, yep, no problem. We'll get into them just perfect. First day in, it was like, whoa, there's no elk in here. There's always elk in mm -hmm. here. And had to move. And, and we, we moved to a different spot and like, whoa, this is never good. And second week and there's, you know, it's 30 head of legal bulls and 300 head of elk. And it's just a rut fest oh, going on party. and found the party. And it's in a spot, you know, it's in a spot that we'd hunted in the past where you killed that bull with your bow. Is that where you're talking up in there? Yep, exactly. Yep. Right. Okay, yep. We, uh, that's a cool drainage in there. That's good rifle season in there too. It's always good rifle season, you know, and I have a rifle on it for a couple of years and, and, uh, but it's always been good rifle season. And we always knew that first week that was the place to hunt, mm -hmm. you know, for archery season, it was always great in there. And yep. we were in there, you know, late second week, um, beginning the third week. And it was just an absolute rut fest. And, you know, there were so many elk in there and the clients that were there that they couldn't believe it. This was their 30th guided hunt. And guy said, I've never seen so many elk. I've never heard so many bugles. And he was like, usually we like to leave by three and home for dinner. And he's like, I couldn't leave the woods. It was just, 
never heard so many bugles in my life. And I was like, all right, let's stick around, you know. And, and man, just it was a good haunt and, and it was fun to do. And I went right back in there after, you know, after for myself. And, you know, it cleared out end of third week and, and it seemed like they just moved. They're going. Was, I was like, you know, got to go relocate them. And they were in spots. We used to hunt second and third week. They moved into fourth week. And it's like, okay, wow, it's just changed. Wow. Know, it's a different deal. And But it's like we said, you know, if you ain't glassing, you ain't moving, you ain't elk hunting. Boy, isn't that it? Yeah, you're either into elk or you're not. But you got to just keep covering country, and you got to keep looking and believing that you're going to see elk. You can't like uh, walk into a drainage and and kind of like half-ass and not glass all the way. Or the, the minute you start thinking you're not going to see any elk, you're probably not going to see any. Like you got to just keep going in there, just looking at every spot and looking at every meadow. And then all of a sudden, there's a big bleach blonde bull out there, or a group of cows, or whatever it is, and they they feed in meadow grass in that spot you're talking about. That's the most epic, big, south-facing feeding feature, you know, with all those micro-drainages going up. It's such a cool spot. And then the rifle season, a lot of times they like to be on that north side in that thicker stuff in those avalanche shoots and smaller openings on that north side but that's a cool spot in there and and you shot that bull in there I remember we backpacked in there uh you came in and shot that really nice six point with your bow in there yep it was uh it was actually opening weekend and the day before opener we had i mean just boatloads of bulls they were going off right 300 headed cows in there and there and we and there was a couple of big big bulls and and uh we were pretty excited the next morning we couldn't put it together but day two um called the called that bull right into us 34 yards and, and stuck him and, and that was my first good bull I and mean, that was 15 18 years ago and and made it happen and that was an absolute i mean for us it was like wow you know we're 13 14 miles from the trailhead and now we got to pack him out but you know we we left our gear in and packed him out the next day and was back in there elk hunting and it was great mm -hmm. even the next six seven days and until we pushed them all out of country but man that was we used to, you know, the panoramic view in that place and the elk that we hunted in there. And I mean, it was just, you saw everything. You saw black bears, grizzly bears. I mean, all the elk you could imagine for just the most epic hunt. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better backpack hunt, you know, mm -hmm. go spend seven to 10 days and just absolute wilderness wonderful elk hunting it was just as good yeah as it gets. oh it's so good yeah i have a lot of good memories in there with you and then with my dad in there and and other buddies as well but yeah no that is a really cool spot i gotta get back in there when you actually killed them on a north side drainage but it was a, a north side feeding feature the way that drainage rolls up there i think i was hunting the other side the south side that day um, but yeah, no, we got into some good bulls, good calling and, you know, elk are heavy to pack out, but you know, when you got a team of buddies, I think there was four of us in there or whatever. And, um, yeah, no, when you're able to bone them out and you, you know, the knowledge of boning out elk and getting them out of country is just the experience of doing it over and over and you get better and better. I mean, I remember the first couple, couple bulls I got down you don't know where to cut or what to do or where to even right. start. And you work on those things and just bust your back for four or five hours to get one broken down to where you know now i mean geez i can have a whole bowl broken down in about an hour with all the meat sitting in game bags ready to go out and in backpacking it's no bones you know and, that's right and i like doing the gutless method you know and, and where you i i pull the actual i think we do it the same way but yeah. i pull the quarters off lay the quarters and then bone out those quarters take the back straps and then the tenderloins are the tricky ones, but I'm getting really good at getting them without getting into the gut bag where you can, you know, cut along the back end of that spine and kind of separate it and get up in there and get those things out, you know. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, they're they're just they're not bad. But the um, it is nice to have friends when you get meltdown. <laughs> oh man, you know it's funny because I remember the first time we packed those bulls out when Stacy and I killed mm-hmm. them, and and uh, we had a whole team of guys come in, you know, and it was a two day ordeal packing two bulls out, and we're packing all that bone and all the you know, and it was just like wow, what are you guys doing? And I remember when I killed that bull with my bow, that was the first time we were you know you'd say hey let's bone this thing out. And I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't know what you're talking about. I was like, like, what are we doing? This is this isn't right. No, you need to take that hip bone with it, and you know the leg bone with it. And you're like, no, you don't need to pack all that. You know, you need to bone it out. And and we worked it out and figured it out. It took yeah. us about four hours to do that first one. You know, but yep. boy, it boned out nice. And with four guys, it made short work of that thing to yeah. pack him out. It was just long ways out, long ways back in. But have you ever packed the bone since? I have never packed the bone since. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to help a few guys load a whole elk on the flats, but it's like, and I keep telling them, they say, man, this is easy. I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> we were packing bones and backbones and rib bones and everything else with us out, you know, and game changed. Mm-hmm. And you had a heck of a pack out on your bull this year. By the time you guys ended up killing him, he was quite a ways back. And those, that head and, and horns are so heavy, aren't they? And <sighs> like you're... Like anymore, I like to carry a bone saw with me where I can skull cut them. Like I like a European bull mount, but I do not like carrying those heavy heads out. Like they're heavy. Absolutely. Miserable heavy, you know. And, and I, you know, we were eight miles from the trailhead. It was 16 miles plus round trip. And when my son was with me, you know, we, we brought out, you know, a quarter and a bunch of boned out meat. And, and that was his first quarter pack out. He's, you know, he's 16. Mm-hmm. He, I, I think he thought that I was crazy. And, uh, you know, he, he, <laughs> he might be, he, he might be. so, but you know, he did phenomenal. He did really good. And I bought, I brought all the boned out meat and, uh-huh. and the, and the head out. Well, I got to where the last mile or so, and I had to gain 1300 feet of elevation and Ugh. I stopped and cut the cape off, you know, and now I'm paying the price for that and trying to get a cape, but you know, it's, uh, it was tough. Yeah, and that's a lot of weight. And Those capes are heavy, especially when they're not dry like that. They're wet. They add a ton of weight to your back. As much weight as you can imagine. I just, I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, you know, with all my gear and some of this boned out meat and this cape, I'm thinking, man, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> now I know I should start shooting little ones. You know, but oh, no, man. Was... You, you earn them. That's for sure. You earn elk, and I, you know, I say that they're not that bad to get out with buddies, but they. I mean, they're a grinder. They're elk. You get a lot of meat. Elk makes the total difference for my family. Like if we if we don't get an elk, we don't make it through the entire year on on wild game. You know, we've got a supplement somewhere. So yeah. you know, I can't kill enough deer to keep up. Like I, you know, you you probably could if you filled all your doe tags. But it seems like it takes three or four deer to equal an elk. I mean, it's amazing how much good organic meat you get off an elk. You know, and so those things are the difference maker. But you got to earn every pound of that stuff getting it out. And last last couple i shot the pack outs haven't been bad but um this year i had a cameraman help me and so there's a couple of us but year before it was a solo pack out and even not being that far on a solo deal and i've done it a bunch of times it was grueling and and you spend so much time bent over bowls when you're butchering them and lifting on those legs it seems like it gets me in my lower back and i've been doing more lower back workouts just because because of it but i remember on that solo bowl like i you know, bent over the whole time butchering by myself and moving legs around and I got done with that thing. And I mean, I had a, I had a kink in my lower back that I had to finish packing all those loads out with, but, uh, those things are, are brutally heavy and you earn every pound of meat, but, um, you, you forget the pain pretty quick. And I bet, you know, even you, you're ready to go elk hunting again, you know, it doesn't take but a couple of weeks to forget. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it was, I was a little sore this year. And like you said, I just had Keith with me. So it was tough to, tough to get that thing all laid out and, Getting where I wanted him, so I can get him boned out because he kind of 
died in a rock pile. And so same thing, you know, you're bent over the whole time fighting with him, trying to get him which direction to which to kind of get him moaned out and get everything that you need to get off of him. And, and uh, yeah, no, I was exhausted for sure. I mean, that was a lot of work. And I tell you, the more mature bull that you kill, it just seems like, I mean, I don't know what they're eating, but they seem to put on a lot more weight. I mean, that thing was that thing was massive big. I just kept thinking, God, this is like my moose. <laughs> I think it was just massive big. And, you know, and every bit of it's earned, you know, no matter how you do it. If you get in the backcountry and you go have to bone one of these things out or pack one of these things out on your back, I mean, I don't care what kind of animal it is. You earn it. And, and every bit of it's perfect. But. Yeah, well, and it's it's part of the fun and part of the enjoyment too. And not that you enjoy, you know, every every minute of it when you're doing it, but you enjoy working hard to get your bulls. And then public land, you know, you just got to put in more effort than the next guy, it seems. But yeah, I, I remember your moose pack, pack out too. Like that one wasn't too bad, but I remember it was deep snow. And you, you, you drew that moose tag and it came down to the end and you were able to kill that thing with your bow like I was with you on the hunt over your shoulder, made a good shot on that thing. And I remember we killed that moose and then we packed him out. I think we got them all out that day, right? We did. It only took us a few hours to get that thing out. We made pretty quick work of it. Yeah, you know, we were only about about a mile or so right. we had to pack him out. It was deep it, snow, but it yeah, it was only snow. about a mile. And, I, you know, those legs on those moose, uh, you know, we, that's one we did leave the bone in on because we were close enough. Oh, that's right. And we were like, man, even maybe we should have boned this guy out. I mean, it was close. And we thought, well, let's quarter him out and bring him out. Well... Them legs are so long, you know, you're dragging them over downfall and in that deep snow, that snow is two and a half, three feet deep. And we shot him the last day of rifle season with archery equipment. Yep. And uh, it was after Thanksgiving, snow is deep, you know, and it's like, wow, I mean, we earned that moose. He he wasn't the biggest moose in the country, but my goal when we set out on that moose is I was going to kill that moose with my bow or I was going to eat my tag. and. Mm -hmm. Pretty tough. You, you only draw one of those probably in a lifetime in, in Montana, and, uh, you know, it's pretty tough to draw them. And you draw them and you make the dedication, hey, I'm going to kill this thing with a bow or I'm going to eat my tag. And pretty tough thing to do, but I stuck it out. And at, at, at one point, I was like, God, maybe I should pick the rifle. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we got it done and, and made a great shot, and we got him packed out. And, and that was a phenomenal hunt. I mean, that's mm-hmm. 134 days. No oh, wow. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't change any of it. And went on a couple of really long expeditions. We went on a 10-day and 11-day hunts. Um, and I packed my bow and had another hunt partner, uh, Jake, come with me on, on both those trips and, and got to see some really cool stuff. And it was funny. We, we were hunting moose, and we heard a growl. You know? And I kept going, God, I know it's a moose. And Jake's like, I don't know. I think it's an elk. And, and we got up there, and all of a sudden, he starts bugling. But he just growled the whole time. He, he never bugled until we got close. And... We got up there, and it was a ginormous bull. He had like 80 head of cows. It was early October. It was October 1st, as a matter of fact. Oh, bow season. Bow season, and I'm sitting there with my bow, and Jake's over my shoulder, and this bull came in, and he was a little, just a touch for him. Jake's not a bow hunter, you know. He kept going, shoot that bull. I'm like, no, he's not close enough, you know. And wait, wait. And we waited on him, waited on him. I turned and looked at him and said, no, we're hunting moose. And he's like, are you kidding me? No, that's a giant bull. We're, we're, we're in the elk hunt now. I'm like, now we got to go find a moose to kill. And man, he, 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 he didn't like that for two days, but he still followed me around, stuck it out and, you know, put on a hundred miles and 10 days. And boy, we really put the time in and got it done. I was glad that he followed me around. Cause there's, 
it was tough on me. Yeah, that's a tough unit. They just um, there's moose in there, but uh, moose by nature are just few and far between. There just aren't as many of them, and especially with the wolves around here anymore, like it's it's tough to find a moose where we used to see a lot more of them. And you you always see a giant moose when you don't have a moose tag. It seems right. like, <laughs> right. but when you got the tag, things change. But we had a good day of moose hunting that day. I think we counted eleven or twelve and a couple different bowls. Like we got into it pretty good that day. You shot yours. We did we actually um we actually saw several cows and calves and we kept changing you know where we were glassing from and vantage points and um we actually got on a vantage point and had spotted that bull moose across the creek and when we got over there we couldn't turn him up remember we we went up to a bigger bull bigger bull yep and we just couldn't turn him up we went hunting and hunted and put the time in and um you actually had turned around and said hey there's a bull right there and we went down there, and we knew he wasn't a great bull, and I was like, man, it's on. I mean, and we got to get over there and get him stalked. And, you know, he stayed put, and it was about a four or 500-yard stalk through that deep snow. And, and he had a, you know, he had a suspicious, we were, you know, we were in the area, and we kind of made him nervous there. And he spooked a little bit, went about 100 yards, and then he settled back down, and were able to get the wind just perfect and snuck in and got him stuck with an arrow but yeah no that was cool yeah i remember you talking about it yeah it brings back memories yeah that's right we did we did kind of bump him a little bit and then kept with him in that deep snow and caught up with him again like over that next ridge right yep. up through there over that knob he just he just kept going and and he got right out of sight and we, we, were, we were nervous and you even said hey we need to go take a look and see where he's going and i was a little bit like hey you know hey he's probably gone out of the country it was a good thing we pushed on because he was mm-hmm. right there he went over the knob and quit and he just he stayed put and was able to give us an opportunity to get enough stock on him so, mm-hmm. which was great well and so you've drawn um and i hunted late season elk tag with you drew once and then you drew the moose tag and then you drew the goat tag right you got your goat in montana remember that came down to the end too like you don't do any easy hunts i don't think but you killed that thing at the top of that mountain at like 9500 feet in the middle of winter didn't you in the middle of november i did i um we started hunting the goat uh october 1st and i shot him with a rifle on november 16th okay and super late the snow had gotten super super deep and and uh i finally found a billy that i really wanted to hunt i'd hunted him two or three times and couldn't get it done with a bow and then i finally picked the rifle up and had a couple hunts on him with a rifle and couldn't you know couldn't find him couldn't turn him up and then the snow got really deep in the backcountry and i was getting pretty nervous mm-hmm. and i was afraid that you know hey it wasn't gonna happen it wasn't gonna happen and everybody said hey you know wait for these things to hair up don't hunt them till october 1st and I mean, do it, do it in hindsight. Um, when that tag starts, I would haunt them. If mm-hmm. I was to ever draw a goat tag again, it would be, if they're going to let me go September 1, I'm going September 1. I mean, they may not be haired up as much, but man, that snow can get very deep in the high country and it can happen quick. I mean, mm-hmm. just overnight, three feet of snow and, and it's quick mm-hmm. and then you're done. I mean, you trying to get around chasing those, you know, those goats up in them big rock shoots when there's that kind of snow and it's it's really tough yeah downright spooky or do you know tough to get up there but spooky once you get up there like that steep snow-covered country up and through there that country you were hunting the map yes for sure um yeah it was it was super deep and anyway we hunted we hunted your goat yep when you had yours with uh you know you hunted it with your bow and we hunted him early yep i think we went in i couldn't get off work until what the fifth or the sixth mm-hmm. I and mean, it was a little bit later than opener but we went in for five or six days and kept telling myself you know hey I, how would you hunt this when there's snow on the ground? You get two feet of snow in that country, you're done. I mean, mm-hmm. I that was super tough, super steep country, and 
you know, that was a long, grueling hunt too. I mean, yeah, put some miles on in some really steep country. For sure. It, it made me laugh. You know, we ran into that guy right out of the gate, and the guy says, are you guys crazy? You guys are going to bow hunt for goats? Mm-hmm. And you're like, yep, going to go get her done. And, and you did. Mm-hmm. You got her done. Eventually, yeah. Eventually. It, took, it took about 10 days or 11 days and three different trips. But, no, I sure appreciate you on that trip. You went in and helped me film on that. And we did a ton of miles on that trip. Oh. We hit the, the ridge and made a big circle. Got got a stalk on a nice billy, if I remember, and saw some other ones. And you saw one down below us at one point, but then we couldn't get to him because of all the rock faces and had to go all the way around to get to them, you know, the, the backside. But, yeah, no, that was a fun hunt. We saw, saw a ton of goats and, and got a bunch of chances. And you always think you can go everywhere a goat can go. You just can't. Like, <laughs> like those no. things live on the steepest faces known to man. Like, the steeper and gnarlier that country is, the more those goats like it, you know. Uh, you just you can't get them. And a lot, of, a lot of the times, hunting goats is finding the goat you want and then waiting for him to put himself in a bad spot. And we, we sure pushed our limits with where we went and where we dropped down where we went i mean we were never unsafe but we went for it you know and we got them in a good spot we went for it you know but yeah there's some places we went we kind of had to talk each other into it i mean i remember at some point you're like well i don't know <laughs> i think we, we can make it <laughs> i think we can, i think we can get over there you know and we ended up going in a couple of times and there's we had to back out a couple of times yeah. too it was like yeah, man, couldn't oh, make it yeah couldn't make it no it's too steep i thought i could get down one of those shoots and there was just no way yeah you're looking to slide off a 2500 foot Slip and slide. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a fun hunt. Well, and you, um, so you do really good. You, you're good. You take advantage of both seasons that we have here in Montana and other states too. I know you hunt Wyoming and some different places, but um, you really do a good job at taking advantage to, to all the seasons that they offer us. And, and like that late season bowl is one of the funnest seasons. Like that's almost like a, an elk rut to me to experience that late season with a rifle and the deep snow and hunting those late rep bulls. That's an experience all in itself um but you've done really good at at, uh being really proficient you've always been a great shot with your bow and then you know lately or at least in the last handful of years you've really worked on your rifle and and your shooting and your accuracy with your rifle so i mean i don't even know where to start with this but now you've gotten so into it like you you are the guy that that everybody talks to me included if i've got any questions on on long-range shooting and and long-range shooting kind of gets a negative persona on it but but long-range ethical shooting and practicing same thing with a bow practicing at 100 yards makes you better at 60 same thing with a rifle practicing at those extreme ranges that you shoot at make you way better at those close shots and and that's you know a, a lot of credit you know, and, and a lot of the reason why you've got this giant ball that's sitting down at your shop and your goat, and you know, you were able to close the deals on that because you are so proficient with your rifle. So to the, to the average guy out there, you know, without, I mean, I know long range equipment is, is expensive, but where's a guy start with an accurate rifle when he wants to get into some longer range shooting? Uh, you know, you can just about do anything that you really want to do with inside your means with, with a factory rifle, with custom rifle, I mean, you can make this thing as advanced as you want. Um, I mean, there's so many things that you can do. I mean, we got guys now that have successfully made, you know, 4,000-yard shots. And it's all about your equipment. I mean, you can just about do anything you want. This really started with me sitting on your front porch shooting archery equipment. I mean, you know, we, the bows got faster and faster. And we're like, hey, you know, let's try this. And you hold over. And then all of a sudden, everything, you know, people started coming out with moving sights. And, and it was like, wow, you know, if, if a guy can do this with a bow, a guy can do this with a rifle. 
And I know you and I played with that several for several years before the sites, you know, moving sites were available, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it was fun. And it was something that we didn't do in the field, you know. It's something we did, you know, at our house at a Target, and it was like, wow, you know, this is cool. And, challenge yourself. And challenge yourself, and you know. And I remember when a forty-yard shot was something that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, we're shooting your three D decoy out there, you know, 65, 70 yards, and 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 it was we thought we'd done something. And, you know, and you look at where they're at now, you see these guys shooting 150 yards and making accurate shots on a 3D decoy. Um, and it's the same thing with the rifle, you know. When we got into it, you know, there's always that that idea that you got to watch out for of ethics. You know, they can you can beat ethics up for, for days and days and days on what's ethical and what's not ethical. And, and uh, you know, I had a guy tell me one time that, if you practice it, you can make that shot in the field. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, he's probably right. And we just kept pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. And there's so much equipment nowadays that you can you can download programs on onto a smartphone or into in some sort of a PDF that you can you know take into the field with you. And it takes all the math out of out of the out of the uh, equation mm-hmm. and kind of made it easy for you. And they've made rangefinders, you know, beyond the limits of. What it was five years ago. I mean, you have rangefinders that'll 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 go twenty five hundred meters and 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 give you very accurate readings and over and over and and so you can do a lot. Um, a lot of guys, you know, they think that they got to go spend ten thousand dollars on a custom rifle. And don't get me wrong, custom rifles are amazing, and you can put an amazing scope on them, and you can and and you can make these shots. But the time you put into it is going to be what you get out of it. I mean. It gets down to where you have to know your bullets, you have to know your powders, you have to reload, you have to go practice, you know, in all all conditions, mm-hmm. hot, cold, steep angles, up, down, cross canyons, reading wind, and any long-range shooter that's done it for a long time, whether it's archery equipment or rifle equipment, um, will tell you that reading the wind is the most treacherous thing on shooting. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do. It's extremely hard to do. And you can practice, 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 and still miscalculate a wind by three, four miles an hour and miss a shot, mm-hmm. whether it's at a target or a, at a shoot somewhere or on, a, on, on an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where, you know, a lot of people play the ethical, you know, the idea of the ethics. And that's what I try to tell people is, you know, if you have variable winds, you have changing winds, you know, maybe you shouldn't take that shot. If you know that the variances are there, whether it's, you know, 400 shot, 800 yard shot, or whether it's archery equipment or rifle equipment, you shouldn't take that shot if you question yourself at all. Mm-hmm. And if, but if you know that you can dope that wind and you can make that shot 100% and that animal is sitting there and it's very, very, you know, he's not moving around, he's not feeding a bunch and he's very low key and you know he's not moving you bet. If it's a high percentage shot and you know 100% in your heart that you can practice that and you can make that, absolutely, please do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and not everybody's created equal. You talk about archery and rifle. I mean, the the guy that takes his bow out a couple weeks before season and shoots and says, well, ethically, I'd never take over a 35-yard shot or a 30-yard shot. And well, Yeah, that's probably about right for you and how much you shoot. But to a guy that shoots every day and dives deep down the rabbit hole of archery to figure out everything from front of center to point weight to fletchings to tune bow, to, and then you're shooting every single day and practicing that muscle memory and you're practicing during those the wind drifts and the different shots, yeah, that animal stands out there at 65 and gives you a broadside. 
you better believe I'm running an arrow through it, you know, but, but not everybody's created equal and same thing with the rifle. And so, you know, I think you bring up a good point is there's, you can, you can go so far down the rabbit hole with archery or with rifle, but the most important thing is to keep learning, but spending time with your equipment, just learning your equipment inside and out. And I know for me, when I was rifle hunting, it's those, those seasons when I would run, you know, and probably sounds silly to you, but I'd run a hundred rounds through my rifle practicing, you know, 10, 12 different times throughout the summer at different yardages, it got my confidence up to where, like you say, when a bull stepped out at 450 yards, I knew I could make that shot. I practiced all summer and ran different loads and I knew my rifle inside and out and I knew how to hit that bull, but it's it's all just spending time with your equipment and, and learning as you go to try to try to get better. And, and ethics is something like, yeah, if you don't think you, should, you can make that shot, you don't take it, but it's almost like this skill that has to be acquired and learned. Like you have to make a mistake to learn not to take that shot. And like, even though you, you practice and you're not, and you can be the most eth ethical guy in the world, but w when it comes down to it, like you, you almost have to miss an animal out there and then feel bad about it and go, man, I shouldn't have taken that shot. There was too much wind. I thought I could hit him, but I couldn't. And you try to learn from that and gauge yourself. And I know how the, as the years go on, I can make some extreme long range shots that I just don't take because of the variables of the wind and the different elements. And like, I'd rather just get a little bit closer and kill them and a little bit closer to me or my kill distance is different than everybody else's. But you just kind of learn that over time. You've got to build your, your own ethics. It seems like as you go, you know, for sure. No, um, you know, and it's funny cause I get a question all the time. I get people that'll show up and say, Hey, you know, will you teach me how to shoot a long range rifle? Um, and that, that question, I mean, they should be asking themselves, because um, you can take any hunting rifle that you want to go out and you want to hunt with, and just like you said, practice, practice, practice. It's like you teach a kid, you know, hey, the best thing I can do is show you hands-on how to hold the rifle, you know, where to shoot, how to hold it, all that, and just tell them to go shoot. Mm -hmm. I mean, they need to, to go shoot, 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 and they need to shoot in the variables and shoot, you know, in different storms. Shooting positions. Shooting positions. Yeah, Real-life positions. Yep, different ranges practice those you know and if you practice them the better you get and the more your confidence rises and then and you know you can make that shot in the field if you've made it 10 times on the range you know at all different shooting positions and different wind uh, wind variables you know you know you can make that shot and that's when you take it i think you're exactly right well i try to tell people you know i have people that i set rifles up for and, and i help you know get them get them doped in and and so they understand you know the rifle set up and ready to go and then when I send them out to go shoot, you know, they say, well, you know, I put it on the bench and put it on the rest and it shot great. Well, yeah, I shot it three times. And I try to tell these guys, I said, listen, put yourself in an uncomfortable position, you know, lay down, shoot prone, you know, shoot off the bench. That's fine. But shoot all these other positions, make yourself a little uncomfortable, throw a small rock underneath your stomach and try to get comfortable mm -hmm. shooting that rifle at a target at six, 700 yards. I mean, at a hundred yards, you know, you already know you're comfortable there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can hit it off the bench. Make yourself take yourself out of your out of your comfort zone. Oh, I like it. Yeah. And if you take yourself out of your comfort zone on the practice range, when you're in the field, because you know as well as anybody is, man, there's going to be a side hill here. You can't level up your rifle perfect, or you can't seem to pull full level on your on your bubble or your bow. You need to know how to 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 uh, figure that out and, and mm -hmm. make it level and make the shot and execute it correctly. Because if you don't, you don't fall through. You're going to push a bad shot. You're going to wound or potentially miss or or, you know, worst case, it hurt an animal that you're you're never going to find that's going to die. Mm -hmm. And um, so you really, I think that just pushing pushing yourself and making yourself, you know, out of your comfort zone and going out and, 
and and forcing yourself to to make those shots, whether it's archery equipment or rifle equipment, put yourself out of your comfort zone. I really think that you'll find yourself successful in the field, no, yeah. and no matter what the equipment is, I don't care if it's a twenty-two rifle or or a, you know big game rifle, even if it's a you know a huge magnum, go out and shoot that thing and, and run some rounds through it and make yourself you know learn how to use the weapon because. Most of the variables are in the guy that's shooting it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not the bow, it's the Indian. That's, <laughs> like, that's right. That's my it, famous saying, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, you're so right. So you use the bench when you're sighting in your rifle, when you're finding loads, when you're shooting groups, when you're trying to make it shoot correctly, you use the bench. But then from there, you don't need the bench anymore. Like what you need to do is practice your skill set. Like you need to practice your, your prone, your sitting position, shooting off a pad all these different you know you can't always get a lay down rest and and same thing with my bow is i i shoot at a dot and i i practice and i i make that thing shoot good groups and i get everything dialed in to where i have confidence and then i shoot a lot of 3d targets like aiming at animals you know i i worry less about the precision i i, I stand you know on my level concrete floor when i'm sighting in and everything's perfect but once i get into my practice routine later in the season i'm standing on one foot i'm on my knees i'm bending around the corner I'm, you know, I'm shooting in wind, and I'm shooting in all these variables and different distances. But it's those those variables, and like you say, yeah, being uncomfortable or pushing pushing your comfort level that that makes you a better shot for sure. Well, I've never I've never heard of a story or read a story where a guy said, "Yeah, I was standing on a flat ground." You know, I mean, I mean, there's no flat ground in elk hunting, is there? <laughs> there's not. I mean, you might get that once in a while on antelope, but man, those things never quit moving. So yeah, if you're in the elk woods, there's going to be unlevel ground and there's going to be rocks and nothing's perfect. Well, and I making a shooting setup is so important too. Like how you're going to shoot, getting set up for the shot, your prep for that shot, I think is so important. Like I used to remember that, and we play a lot of cat and mouse with these bulls and so we play vantage points and we sit on them morning and night and we see these bulls and we don't really go into the timber after them you know usually that that's a recipe for busting that bull out you know and so usually you know like your case you had your big bull bedded and you could see him and you knew he was there and you were across the hillside like yeah you bet if you've got an exact position on him but a lot of times these bulls and bucks will disappear into the cover and we won't go in after them. We're hunting them in their feeding feature. And so what we'll do in the morning is if we see a bull go into the thick timber, we'll set up on them and let them come out in the afternoon. And so when you're setting up, like it's important to get your pack set up and how you're going to shoot. And you always try to shoot for a lay down position if you can. Your next position is sitting and it depends how far you are. But you need to, you know, take 10 minutes and get set up how you're going to shoot, you know, so you don't got to do that right in the moment when that bull walks out. But getting your shooting set up, I think, is pretty important, too, don't you? I do. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I that I try to strive to people, especially on rifle, you know, rifle shooting, is always keep your head on your rifle. It's kind of like a follow through. And I used to have a major problem with with uh, with doing that. And my uh, buddy of mine, Jake Ship, he used to uh, he used to uh, always tell me, "I'm going to duct tape your head down to that rock, <laughs> that stock on that gun, so you, you know you get your follow through and, and and you know you see you you finish your follow through basically, and you see where your where your rifle's aimed when you keep your head on the rifle and and. I try to instill that in my kids, and even sometimes, you know, I get myself excited and want to look above the bow or look above the rifle, and and uh, you need to make sure that you, like you said, when you set up and you're shooting and when you're doing those practices, um, this is the biggest thing is always making sure you're following through and, and, and keeping your head down on your gun so that you know that you're getting a good follow through, but absolutely, if you... It, 
the setup is everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't if you don't practice those setups, they're not going to work for you in the field. You're always going to be uncomfortable, and and you're going to be struggling to to get set up correctly. And it's something that needs to be practiced. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like to, you know, you get your, your front set up. I know you shoot off a bipod. A lot of guys do, or you can shoot off your back in that prone position, but it's so important to get those back elbows down or, or in a sitting position, locking yourself into that position and getting something to brace off that back elbow. Is that what you, you try to get to? I do. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, and, uh, so talking to a rifle guy, like now I got to come clean with uh, some of my habits. So like, uh, oh, oh, I wanted to ask you one question with your head to the stock. So when you're talking about that, like, like your follow through, like you're talking about executing your shot through your scope and keeping your head down on your rifle glued to your stock as you shoot and execute. And then looking back through your scope to see the report of the rifle, like just keeping your head down, not pulling your head off the rifle. Is that what you're talking about? That's correct. Okay. Um, Try to keep your head on your rifle, and I know with the bigger magnums, it's super, super tough. Um, we use a pretty heavy rifle, and you know, muzzle brakes on the guns just because of that reason. It uh, if you can, you know, keep the recoil down a little bit or as much as possible. You know, if it's not beating you up, the better it is for follow through, and it's nice to be able to follow through and see where your where your you know where your bullet hits or where where your target's at. I always try to keep my head on my rifle because it seems like it keeps me on my target better mm-hmm. and especially in the long range shooting it seems like i can actually catch the vapor trail catch the hit mm-hmm. in the scope where you don't if you know if you don't have a spotter to you know call your call your shots out it's really important to have or find a way that you can get your follow through through your own scope so you can see where your rifle or where your bullet hits okay well and just to inform right if you pull your head off like you can pull your shot as well right very, keeping tucked into your rifle is a good follow-through after the shot very true okay 100 yeah. percent. yeah it's just like with your bow getting a true follow-through with your with your hand mm-hmm. um and letting that ball that that bow fall away um mm-hmm. and getting a good follow-through yeah it's it's it makes a big difference especially in the long range because it's just like anything else the further you're shooting the more important it is to to get a good follow through and be super stable. Yes. You don't do that. And you know, at a couple hundred yards, it's not going to probably make a whole lot of difference to be two inches off, but to be, you know, to be half a minute off at a thousand yards, you start talking the difference of a vital shot or, you know, getting back in the guts or getting into a bone that you don't want to get into, or you may not knock that animal down. Yeah. Bad form magnifies the further you get out there, whether it's a bow or with a rifle. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, okay. So this is, I'm glad I got you here. This is something I want to ask you about. So I do a lot of dry fire practice. I, I really like dry fire practice, getting in positions and squeezing on the trigger with the scope. So I've read multiple forums and tried to read if it's bad. Like I have my kids practice that a lot because they're not so familiar and they don't get to shoot, you know, a hundred rounds a year or whatever. And so we do a lot of dry fire practice and it helps them get into their shooting position. So I say, lay down position, aim at the 3d target, and then I have them squeeze on the trigger as their scopes moving around. And they, they've learned really good to not, not try to pick your spot and aim now and go now and try to make it happen anytime. Like that's my biggest mistake with the rifle over the years is getting too excited and slamming my trigger as soon as my crosshairs hit where I want. But, um, dry firing practice. Do you do any of that? I do. I do a ton. Oh, right on. Good. Um, I thought you were going to tell me I'm ruining my rifles or something. <laughs> is what I was expecting. <laughs> you know, um, I've heard different gunsmiths say different things, you know, that it's hard on the firing pin or, you know, it's hard on your bolt, um, hard on the spring inside the, inside the bolt. Um, we do a ton of it. 
Mm-hmm. I even I make my kids do it, or you know I have okay. them do it. My wife does it. We will set up on the on the kitchen counter and make sure that you know the gun's empty, of course, and mm-hmm. and we'll sit no, there. Not loaded, huh? Not loaded. No, <laughs> okay. no, that's bad. That's <laughs> yeah. real bad. All right, um, gotcha. Um, just to prevent an accident, you know. Yeah, but, for sure. Um, we do that, and we'll set up at the kitchen table, and I'll set them all up and get them all squared up, and make them level the rifle up, and and close their eyes, open their eyes while they're all set up to make sure that they're in true form Mm -hmm. and and they'll sit there and and dry fire. And that's something that we do on every animal before we take them. Oh, okay. Um, In the long range deal, I, we have always dry fired on our animals before we pull the trigger. Always. If you get in a hurry and push a bad shot, that's exactly what you're going to make is a bad shot. And, um, and I and I learned I learned that from other people. I, I didn't learn that myself. It's not self taught. I I had a buddy that told me that over and over and over that take the time because if you push a bad shot when you're going to make a seven, eight, nine hundred yard shot, yeah, you, you're going to you're going to push something you don't want to push, mm-hmm. and you're going to end up either missing that animal or or, or you're going to end up wounding them or making a bad shot that you'll regret. So the biggest thing is is we set up, we make sure the rifle's true, we make sure that when we dry fire it a couple times on that animal that the, the crosshairs don't pull off the animal, that you're not canting the rifle or, or pulling the rifle at a level or pulling the rifle off that animal or into a non-vital spot. Mm-hmm. So we'll dry fire two, three times, or, or if you're not comfortable, something didn't feel right, do it a couple more times. Mm-hmm. And if you ain't got the time to do that, we just don't take that shot. Oh, I like that. So, I like to implement that to the guys that I rifle hunt with. You know, I'd, I'd love to have them take those longer dry fires like that. It's just going to work on their trigger control, their execution, and it, it's going to ensure that they're executing right in their practice, which means the very next time they're going to execute correctly and put a perfect shell on it. And I have, I have them aim and, and pre-aim and try to keep that target on it. I know with my daughter this year, you know, she had to make a little bit longer shot than we had practiced, but I knew it was within her skill set. It was like 225 or right in there. We couldn't get any closer and it was a buck. And so it was just like, man, you feel comfortable with this. You know, here's the lay down rest and got her in her position. She had practiced and put a perfect shot on that deer. Just put it right in it. But um, that, I really like your tip of dry firing on animals. That's a good one. Well, and you're doing it right. You're having them dry fire. You're having them practice. And the biggest thing is, is that I try to tell people is don't give a kid an oversized rifle. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you, once in a while, and I've seen it several times where dad will go sight in a, you know, big, you know, Magnum or a 30 caliber rifle. And then they take their 12 year old kid that weighs, you know, 110 pounds hunting. And then that, that rifle beats them up. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, they got the flinch down real good because they're afraid <laughs> of that rifle. And, and I'm guilty. Uh, I, I did it with my oldest son or, you know, and mm-hmm. we first started hunting and it's like, take him out and i'm like yeah you can shoot this 300 ultra mag you know and and that's absolutely was the wrong thing to do and, and give him that rifle and he built a really bad you know flinching habit and we had to go back to the 22 and just two 300 rounds of just 22 practice just over and over and over to get him to quit flinching and and uh you know he he suffered from that for a couple of years mm-hmm. and now he's got her you know he's got her pretty dialed and, and he's got her down he's down you know good yeah he's shooting good but you, if you if you give a kid a great big rifle and you don't give them the practice where you're dry firing and you don't give them the practice on the range, um, it, it's gonna it's it's gonna show up in the field and mm-hmm. that's the last thing you want to have to deal okay. with. Okay, yeah. So I got to tell on my dad now is uh, growing up in Washington. You know, there's a you're hunting a lot of brush and a lot of thick cover. It's a lot of rainforest ferns and you know you when you see a blacktail, you know, or a Roosevelt, it's it shoot now and hurry up and shoot. But they hunt with a lot of thirty thirties over there. Well, my dad picked me up this small rifle for my first rifle, and I was a small kid. I 
I was 12 years old. I, I weighed less than my daughter. I weighed about 70 pounds or so. So I was just a little tiny, skinny <laughs> kid, you know. And uh, so my dad got me my first rifle. I think I was. we could start hunting when we were 10. So I was probably even smaller yet. Um, and uh, my dad got me my first rifle and brought it home and said, Yeah, son, I got this good deal on this rifle for you. We're going to go out to the range and sight it in. Here you go. Here's your new 375. I hope you like it. <laughs> so I, I, it was an open sighted 375 lever action. And, you know, it, we, uh, and my dad's a great hunter and a great teacher over the years, but it's just what we knew for brush guns over there, you know. And so he got me that gun just so I could shoot deer and elk. And it was like the stock was small and it fit me. And the first time I shot it, tipped me over backwards off the, off the table, <laughs> like off the shooting table, tipped me over backwards onto my back. And so, like you say, I had to get over that flinching habit as well. But yeah, no, I like your tip, uh, uh, having those kids start out with, uh, and, and really rifles, it's, it's more about accuracy than, than, you know, the, the actual shooting a big bullet at them. And if kids shoot a, a, a rifle accurately, that's going to be way better than trying to step up their caliber. And I, I know I've got, uh, my girl shooting a seven mm 8 with a kid stock on it. And it's a, it's a really good rifle. And then I've got them shooting low kick shells and we just, you know, 200 yards is about our limit. But like I say, my daughter made that 225 this year, but that's where we practice at. And that's where we all feel comfortable. And they're, they're still just in the learning process of getting familiar with it. But yeah, I think that's a great tip. Well, that's a great caliber. Um, that's what both my kids use and they okay. still, still use them today. And, and, um, we've actually moved them in cause both my kids are shooting long range with us and they've kind of gotten into some of the thousand yard stuff. And, and we moved them into, you know, six, five by 284 and a 260, which is, Okay. Same recoil area, the 7M M08, a um, little bit higher BC bullet, so they can do some stuff that they can't do with the 7M M08. Um, but I, that's a great caliber, you know, and I try to tell everybody that I know is, hey, you want to get a kid in and start shooting, you know, get some low kick shells and mm-hmm. either get them out on a 243 or a little 6MM or 7M M08. I mean, you're not going to go wrong with any of those calibers and mm-hmm. getting a kid out, and it's cheap. I mean, even buy ammo, it's super cheap. And as we all know, you know, in the last few years, the, with the ammo crunch on it, that uh, it was tough to get them. It was expensive to get kids out shooting. And, and I just, yeah, you get them out into one of those low caliber rifles and they just shoot and shoot and shoot. You couldn't ask for a better teacher. Just yes. practice and, yeah. and put them in, the, you know, on, on a practice field and let them go out and shoot them guns and they'll learn so much and that's a great caliber yeah that's a good place to start them. well i remember your buddy stacy that we talked about earlier in the podcast that shot those bulls up there he hunted for years with that 25-06 yep still hunts with it today does he okay yeah, he, he hunts does. elk with it and yeah but yeah you know he hits them right and they don't they they die you know it's all about shot placement you know more so than the bigger caliber Yep, you know, and it, it was funny because, uh, you know, he's gotten into buying some bigger guns, and he's got a fifty caliber he likes to go out and go prairie dog hunting with. And it's funny because he, he tells my 15-year-old son, he's like, yeah, he goes, I use the fifty cal to go out and shoot prairie dogs, but I use my twenty five out 6 to go out hunting. <laughs> so, I mean, and it, it's all relative, but, um, you know, it's 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 good. It's uh, There's nothing wrong with these smaller caliber rifles, you know, I, and, and that – Truth be out there is like you said, you know, you really got to just shot placements, everything. And and I try to tell everybody, shoot the biggest rifle that you can shoot accurately. Mm-hmm. And if you're a guy that can't shoot anything bigger than a 25 caliber rifle accurately, then that's what you should be using. Mm-hmm. And learn, learn, learn. And, and So do you think the less kick and the less the caliber that it's... I mean, it doesn't build more accurate of a rifle, but they sure seem to shoot more accurate, like the, the like the lesser calibers. Like, how do you how do you judge that? What rifle you should be shooting? 
Well, is what I do is is I kind of chase the BC world. I, I like you know I like I pick a rifle that has a high ballistic coefficient, which that can open up a huge can of worms of uh, understanding ballistic coefficient. Um, the other thing I really look at is sectional density on a bullet. If you if you have a bullet that has a low sectional density, penetrating power basically, uh, layman's terms, uh, you want a bullet that's going to have a good high BC, and you want something that's going to have a good sectional density. Um, that's how I pick my rifles. The biggest thing is, is you can get into 338, 408s, 375s that have these huge BCs, but that's just too big of a gun. I mean, you can make those heavy guns with muzzle brakes and, and silencers and stuff like that. So a kid can shoot it. They absolutely can. But you start talking about packing around a 18, 20, 25 pound rifle, and that's just too much to pack on these, these seven, 10 day backcountry hunts. So is what I try to look for is something that's mid-range, something that's got a good BC that I can get a good, you know, variable different bullets that I can shoot and practice with and I find a load that I like and take that gun hunting. And I try to stay around that 12 to 15 pound range rifle uh, just because we do so much backcountry hunting with them. Um, and there are some states too that you cannot have, you, that you cannot exceed a weight limit on, on your rifle. Okay. And so, you know, Picking the biggest rifle that a kid can pick or a person can pick that that they can shoot accurately without problems, without them beating them up, without having flinch problems, that's what I would run. Yeah. Well, and I, I just know throughout the years and the rifles that I've owned, it seems like these smaller caliber rifles, they just shoot better for me. Like I don't yeah, – and like you say, I think you can work with those bigger calibers and muzzle brakes and make them shoot better, but, but like uh, – you know, I, I never shot my, I shot my 300 a lot and it was a really good rifle for me, but I, I, it's just like pulling that 270 out or that 7mm 08. God, those are just sweet shooting rifles. Like, I don't know why that is. If, you know, and I've watched guys bring out the, the bigger rifles, like the, the 375 and the, the, the 338s. And I've watched them miss quite a bit with those rifles. Do you think there's something to that with the kick and the accuracy? Or do you think the big rifles are just as accurate as the small rifles that it comes down to shooting form and, and working with your rifle and they can be just as accurate? I think some of it comes down to clear down to the, what, you know, kind of bullet they're using, they're reloading and, yep. and what they're using. Um, I've seen guys that could stack 10 rounds on top of each other at a hundred yards out of a seven mag. And then do the same thing with a 243, and then same thing with like okay. a 338, 378s. Okay. Um, but if you take a factory rifle, and, and my personal experience is you can make a 243 or something off that case, like a 7mm08 or the 308s right in there, I can take a factory rifle with factory ammunition and get them to stack on top of each other and outshoot any of the big magnums, okay. especially with factory ammo. Okay. And I used to be a firm believer that. You know, I had to shoot a 25 out six or 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 smaller caliber rifle because they shot so good with factory ammo. But um, later on, when I got into reloading and realized I could take my 338 win mag and develop loads that would you know stack 10 rounds on top of each other, where I'd shoot a you know group with all the bullets touching. Before then, I just I, I agreed with you. you okay, know? so uh, it's just working with your rifle more, you know, handling your rifle, working with your loads more, and, and load development is okay. the biggest thing. Okay, absolutely, yeah. just in reloads, and they make so many different powders and bullets and stuff, and and you just never know what's going to shoot good through that rifle. I yeah, mean, every that. rifle has its own round it likes, right? Yep, yeah, and, and no two rifles are ever the same. I mean, I've I've had two of the same exact brand rifles that came off the assembly line right together. And one of them would love like a 200 grain bullet and the other one would love a 180 grain okay. bullet with two different powders. And, 
and it's, you just never know. You just got to mm-hmm. go out and, and, and even factory ammos, even if you're a factory ammo guy, it's like a, it's bite the bullet and buy a bunch of different kinds of ammos and shoot that thing on the bench and find out which load it likes. Cause they, they do like certain loads and certain grain weights and in certain powder, it seems. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, there's so, there's so much out there that you can go shoot and practice mm-hmm. with, whether it be a broadhead or a bullet. You, if you do your homework, you can find one that'll shoot with your bow, your arrow, or your brass and in the powder you're using. You can make some shoot, even in factory ammunition, you can make them shoot good. Okay. Well, and so it sounds like uh, like what I'm, I'm thinking and what I'm saying with the smaller calibers, like they are easier to shoot accurately. Like you have to work more at that. The bigger the caliber, the harder you got to work to make that thing shoot and stack bullets and, and, and operate like you want it to. It sounds like. I bet I've had better luck with the smaller caliber rifles okay. with factory ammunition out of the box and hands down. Okay. Um, you could probably talk to somebody later on today and they totally disagree with me. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm just looking yeah. for opinions and throwing yeah. stuff out there. No. And that's been my experience, especially with my kids. And, and I love it because, you know, I'll go get beat up by my big 338 mag, you know, and, and, and take a beat. And then the kids will be there and they'll be shooting the two sixties and the two forty threes. And I'm like, God, I could shoot this thing all day. This is great. And it doesn't hurt. It doesn't, you know, and it feels great to shoot. And, mm-hmm. and same thing. You can, you can take, factory loads and, and sit there and shoot them and shoot them and shoot them and it just seems like they're inherently more accurate okay um but yeah no i okay i, I absolutely agree with that yeah all right yeah, just a little hunch i had well um right on man um well yeah i can't uh like i say tons of congratulations for your bowl this year you've been working so hard grinding over the years in public land and wilderness every every season i know you're taking a bunch of time bow and rifle really cool to see you get it done on that on that gigantic bowl it's so fun to look at it at your shop the other day um man what a bowl um so it it's just a, a a proof and a testament to you know your hard work and dedication to the sport and dedication to hunting so really happy to see you knock down such a great bowl that was cool yeah, no, it was it was a highlight of my hunting career so far. Um, you know, it was great to kill a great big bull. But the one thing that I that I think paid dividends is is I got to kind of go back in the mm-hmm. past here yeah, a little bit. Sure. Is I drew a late season elk tag here what 16, 17 years ago, mm-hmm. and and you and I and Jake we we had all these plans to go hunt. It was only a four day four day tag, and mm-hmm. and I remember driving up and down the range and glassing and glassing, and you kept saying, "Dude, what are you seeing? What are you seeing?" And nothing. I see all these elk on the flats and you're like, Hey, you got to stop looking at the elk on the flats with all the cows. And I mean, you know, you got to go find a bull guy and, uh, you loaned me your scope. And I, I know I had really poor glass at the time and you gave me your spotting scope for three weeks and, and, and took off and went with that scope and it was good glass. And it was like, wow, it was a, it was a world changing, you know, thing for me in, in the hunting industry or my hunting life. So anyways, I, uh, we took that scope and I glass and glass for three weeks and happened to start turning up some really good bulls and thought, wow, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get something done here. And, and that's what started my glassing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, before then, if you'd have told me, Hey, you need to go spend hundreds of hours behind a spot scope or glassing through good binoculars to find what you really want, huh? Mm-hmm. I'd have told you you're crazy, but no, absolutely. And that's where it all started was, Hey, you've got to put a ton of time in glassing and you've got to use good glass or, or you're, or you're not going to turn up the elk or the deer that you want, huh? Mm-hmm. And that started, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And, and that's been the changing for me for in my mm-hmm. hunting career. Um, whether it's rifle season, archery season, I, I don't care. I pack my spotting scope. I know it's heavy, but I pack that scope in bow season, rifle season. I don't care. Shed season, my spot scope, if I go, it goes with me. And I, I just, I live, I live off that scope. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Glasson to hunt has has been is what's got me my few big animals that I've killed has been behind the spot and scope. And yeah, I can't tell people enough. Just hey, look through your glass, put your time in. Look through your glass. You may not see them three days in a row, but day four, that thing might show up on that little opening. So keep looking, keep glassing, keep moving. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's it's almost like a you, you almost got to change your mindset to to be glass. You like, and, and you've done a great job of living and dying behind your glass. Like you saw the light, and you haven't looked back since. But you, it's like a mindset. It's like you almost start hunting different. You start hunting for places where you can see and places that's going to open up country so you can keep tabs on it. And yeah, once you kind of see the light and see that different mindset that that you know to live and die behind your glass off those vantage points and you have to see those elk or see those deer to kill them you know yeah that's that's uh one of the the big changing events in in my hunting career too is just spending that time behind the glass living and dying behind the glass and letting your glass do your walking for you and yeah you got more than a few trophies that that glass has turned up you've done really good bucks and bulls and i know you got a bunch more in your future but no you're right you you just start looking at country different and spending a lot of time behind your glass at the right times you can look at the best elk country in the world at the wrong time of day and you're not going to see any elk on it absolutely yeah, yeah no that's for sure i uh I, uh, you know, we just, the, the glassing that we've done, and I remember when we did our first trip to Wyoming when you drew your first deer tag, mm-hmm. and, and glass, 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 you know, and, and uh, kept saying, God, that looks like perfect country, and you'd agree, and you said, but it's noon, you're mm-hmm. probably not going to see nothing up there, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, but it's perfect country, and, and uh, you know, learning the days, and, you know, the time that they're there, and day, and what time they're coming in, in the evening, and in the morning, and, and uh, when to glass, and when not to glass, and having good features to, to glass, I mean, that's that's everything and you got to be willing to move and cover country but uh yeah live for, live off your glass yeah. I, I, you've got a glass you got to find vantage points whether whether you're doing it from a vehicle or on foot or your horseback guy that's what i tell people it's you've got to keep moving keep getting on vantage points even if it just shows you one opening um you know i killed that book that you know that great big bull this year on a little opening and this this opening was like 30 yards by 30 yards and you wouldn't think anything could live there for more than a day and it just i mean it looked like he'd been living there for a month mm-hmm. and i just like you've got to look at those little spots and do whatever it takes to get a vantage point to, mm-hmm. to see that stuff and and it it paid for itself. Well, and like you, as you're getting, you know, you get you get to good vantage points and you glass for an hour in the morning. But but then it's about moving through country and just always looking with your binos, just like almost like you've got OCD. You're just constantly pulling them to your face, looking at every little opening, every little sliver of country you can. But that's how you spot animals. Absolutely. Yeah. And once you once you spot them, then you can kill them. But yeah, you, and and like you say, from your vehicle, a lot of times the glassing, you know, long distances the day before you're going to hunt or a couple days before your hunt will turn up elk and and even you know in that early season that bow season for me and those those bulls are up in high country and up in the mountains but if i can drive and i can look five ten miles up those mountains you, you know now you know we talk about walking up a drainage hunting that drainage and seeing what's there and then hiking up the other drainage and seeing what's there well now you can start to eliminate that with just a couple days of prep before your hunt you look at a bunch of different features on the mountain and then you see a herd of elk 
elk up there. You see a batch of elk doing their deal. Maybe you can't even tell if there's a good bull in there, but it's telling you there's elk in that drainage. And usually where you find one, you find more. And so, yeah, that, that uh, spending time behind your glass, even at extreme distances from highways and from, from vantage points, dirt roads and things like that will really tell you a lot. Like that intel is so important coming into a hunt. Yes, absolutely. And, and I, I don't know what your opinion is, but it seems like the late season, late season rifle tags seem like they're just, they're tough. They're super tough. And you may go spend, you know, eight, 10 days behind glass and never turn up a good bowl. Mm-hmm. And you just got to be committed to keep, keep driving or keep putting miles under your feet and covering country. It just seems like them things just they get in some little hidey hole and just disappear. Well, and it seems like, you know, during our general rifle seasons now, like having a spotting scope and glassing is no secret. And so there's a lot of guys doing it. And so I think, you know, looking at those easier features of the features you can see, I think those bulls get seen by somebody, they get in there, they get shot and get bounced out of there to where now when you're driving the range in places where we used to see quite a few bulls using this technique that we're talking about, looking at long distances, which works and is effective, but it seems as we get into this new age of hunting, now you can't find elk on those slopes because people have seen them and gone up there and busted them out. So now it's about like getting back into country and grabbing vantage points back into country and and kind of looking back in there to locate elk it seems like absolutely and, and and we've discussed this a couple of years ago you know you, the, the the opening bases were just empty places that we've been committed to for years and have been very successful hunting on them mm-hmm. and they're just empty just there was yep. no elk around and, and we talked about maybe we just need to get where the where the elk were at to glass back into the you know the next drainage over or the next feature mm-hmm. over and we'd find vantage points behind where we typically hunted elk and, oh, you know, we turn them up. It's like, wow, they are. They're just another vantage over, and they're in the next hidey hole over, and and there's elk there. It's mm-hmm. just, they just, they've moved, and they found, you know, secondary feeding features to go spend their time, because mm-hmm. they have been bumped, and, and uh, they've been hunted. Well, yeah. You're, you're hunting high-pressure public land animals, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it's, I think it's, it's a ton of fun, and mm-hmm. I love it. I I get a kick out of it, but it's it's a learning curve every year. So oh, like, yeah. you know, the minute you think that uh, you got them figured out, they humble you yeah. very quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, um, they do. They humble you. Yeah, just when you think you got them figured out, you don't. But you did have that one figured out this year. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's um, you know, uh, glassing those features or working into those features. You know, and two, it's glassing the the right spots at the right time of day. So we talk about hunting them in their feeding features and glassing open meadows and open parks and avalanche shoots and different things in that morning and night well during the middle of the day i've got into really glassing and timber like getting on opposing hillsides where the timber kind of opens up to me and i can glass it and i did really good this year muley hunting with my dad is glassing into these burn spots and these thick timber in the day but during that middle of the day you can still be productive you just try to find vantage points that'll open up that timber and bedding features and you never know when you're going to look in there and see a bleach blonde body in there there's your bowl that you've been after, you know, but glassing the right spots at the right time of day. Well, absolutely. Cause that bowl stayed in that, in his bed until 1245. I actually, we saw that bowl at daylight, which was about 10 minutes to eight is when we saw him walk out. When he went to bed, we were on the move and he, he bedded down within a half hour after daylight. And, uh, he never moved his bedding until we got over to him and, and I shot that bull exactly at 1243 and he was just coming out of his bed just before I, you know, before we got there. And so until that sun really beats down on them or they get uncomfortable or some reason, I don't know why they get up and move when they do, but, uh, 
that bull stayed there and I, he must have felt very comfortable and very mm -hmm. safe because like I said there's some horseback riders that had rode right underneath him and I could see him the whole time so if we wouldn't have seen him when we did I mean a guy could have spotted that bullet 10 o'clock in the morning on that little knob you know mm -hmm. but it just happened to get lucky and catch him go bed down and and knew he was there and I just kept pulling up my binoculars and being able to see that he was there the whole stock in there made it made it great for us as far as stocking in on the animal but um yeah you just you just never know when they're going to lay out on a feature and, and spend the day there uh mm -hmm. killed a lot of elk that have stayed out on a feature till 11 o'clock in the morning so yeah absolutely you, you never want to give up and and stop for sure but um um, was he bedded in the timber? He was bedded on the edge of the timber. It was a, it was a little knob that was sitting right against the timber, and and um, he was in the open. I mean, there wasn't a there wasn't a tree within fifteen yards of him. Was wow. where he bedded the whole you know the whole morning, okay. and I was a little surprised he laid out there like he did. I kept thinking, God, if you keep laying out there, somebody's going to shoot you, <laughs> you know. And uh, but he did, you know, he laid out there and gave us the time to get over there and and get the job done, and and mm -hmm. that's been that's been. Uh, but something I've been reliving since, I and mean, it's been just three months of, oh my God, I can't believe I got her done, you know. And it's definitely my biggest bull to date, and and uh, on a public land unit and a high pressure unit like it is, it was, it was amazing to get it done. And I mean, ninety five percent luck, and you make your own luck. You push hard and you push hard, but uh, it was cool to get it done on a great yeah. big bull, and and I relive it every day. You know, I get to come in and see that bull, and I'm like, God, what would I do to live that again, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, but it was. It was super fun. I mean, it was just, uh, it was fun to have my son with me. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I had some buddies come help me pack it out on day two and finish the pack out and had to go back in on day three and pick up some of my gear I left behind. Just, <laughs> <laughs> it was too heavy. I couldn't do it. Uh, but um, three days of that and, and every every second you go, God, is it worth it? And absolutely. I mean, just you couldn't ask for a better hunt. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, and this year being as warm as it was, I was actually surprised at where he was. And maybe that's why he was on a little knob in a, in a ruddy area or an area that they spend during, during the archery season. Um, cause I'd never, you know, seen elk there this time or that time of year. I mean, what's why you get a big batchy herd of, uh, of bulls that would pass through, but they'd never stay. They'd never live there. Um, so, I mean, it was pretty cool to catch him where I did and he was all by himself. It was the only bull we saw in the whole hunt. And when we were packing him, you know, packing that bull out day two, when I had some buddies, we actually did see another elk, but, it was the only other elk we saw for five or six days. So mm -hmm. pretty fortunate to get it done on a giant bull and on a high pressure unit like it was. But yeah. yeah. So how fast was your pace with that thing laying out in the open, that giant bull, and you had all that distance to cover? Like I can only imagine you about killed yourself and about killed your son trying to get there. <laughs> so we had we had several little rock shoots that we had to cross and you know how noisy them rock shoots are, you know, and you're trying to get across them and I kept turning around, like, Keith, you know, shh, be quiet. And he's Dad, you're making the same noise I am <laughs> You know, and at one point we were we were about three quarters of the way over there, we're going across a chute and Keith said, Dad, I gotta stop and tie my boots. I'm like, you gotta do what? <laughs> you know, I just <laughs> yeah. thought I was gonna lose, you know, lose that little window just because he had to stop for 30 seconds to tie his boots. Like, come on, son, hurry up, get them boots tied. We gotta go. But, <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, we pushed, pushed super hard, and every time he'd fall down, I'd throw my binos up out of my case, and oh, yeah, he's still there. And he's so far away that I mean, you probably could have, probably could have shot from over there, and he wouldn't have known where it's coming from. But, um, <laughs> well, you're running everything through your head in a scenario like that for sure. Yeah, no, it was it was a uh, it was a fun hunt, and we pushed really hard. And I know that Keith. It was funny because uh, he had football practice the next day on Monday, and I asked him. I said, "Hey, you know, 
I said, you want to go get out of school? You can go with me and help finish packing him out, and it'll be you know a great adventure. And tried talking him up, and he's like, no, Dad, I'd rather go to football practice. <laughs> and I was like, do you think you're going to be less tired after practice? He's like, absolutely. <laughs> so, so yeah, he was he was pretty burned out, but. He's uh, he's ready to go again now, and he's excited. He keeps going. God, Dad, we're gonna go back to that same spot. And it's like, well, I, I don't know that the, he'll he'll be there again or have another bowl there, but absolutely, we'll keep hunting that spot and mm-hmm. and uh, and doing it. But I think he's ready to go for another eight mile pack out. But. Oh, right on. Well, yeah, how cool. Uh, well, like I say, congratulations on that bowl, and uh, you earned it, and you deserve every bit of it. Really cool to have your son with you like that. And yeah, I, I can't wait to see that bowl every time I come into your house and and walk in. That'll be the only thing. I'll be looking at I can guarantee you that but um, no such a super bowl and yeah thanks for sharing information on long range shooting and kind of some different theories that I had rattling around in my brain and I think that's going to help guys out as well so um, again man really appreciate it yeah yeah no problem I is uh you know the the elk hunting that we've done in the past you know most of our hunting we've done early season you know and mm-hmm. usually guy gets it done archery season and you don't have to go into the cold weather well this year we were kind of fortunate you know and most guys want two feet of snow and get them up pushed around and we got to hunt 60 degree weather all of rifle season i mean mm-hmm. it was just absolutely it was warm it was nice and it was kind of like bow hunting during rifle season so no i i enjoyed it and i, I love sharing the story and everybody that comes into my my shop has to hear the story, you know, I, <laughs> even if they don't ask, they get told. <laughs> for so, sure. But uh, I even had it at the shop here for, you know, a week or two because I had to show everybody that walked in the door. It's just kind of my prized possession. I was like, look at this, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, enjoyed it. Late season elk hunting, you know, it's kind of a, something I've always loved doing and usually you're doing it in the snow, but this year we got to do it in t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I enjoy hunting and I take every opportunity I can if they'll let me bow hunt and rifle hunt and hunt hunt every time they let me go I'll go yeah good for you no you take good advantage of all the seasons that we get over here but no it's it's just awesome and I you know I'm sure you're going to kill a lot of a lot of other big bulls and you're going to be chasing that one for a while but who knows you know maybe you've got the secret recipe too but uh, <laughs> um, they sure are fun to chase around the hills and, and really cool to get it done on a monster like that so um, now kudos to you man uh mm-hmm. Uh, Kunta came to a, a more well-deserved guy, you know, hunting the backcountry. So it's just awesome to see. So right on, man. Thanks a bunch for being on. I really appreciate it. So yeah, we're hour and thirty minutes of just sitting talking. So I got to have you on again. We got to come up with a different topic and talk. And I'm sure we could do the the world's longest podcast. But uh, we have so <laughs> many stories and go back so far. But thanks a bunch for being on and sharing information, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, and it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully, do another 20 years, we can rack up some bigger game here and some more animals, more hunts. It'll be fun. Yes, for sure. Right (laughs) on, man. All right. Thanks, Pat. Yep, you bet. Thank you. All right, guys. That's an episode. Um, Pat Nowak. Really fun conversation with him. He's been hunting public land, do it yourself for a long time and grinding at it. Fun to see him kill that really nice bull last year. He's been working at that for a lot of years and and just fun to sit down with him. He's got such a knowledge base and then he spent so much time researching and learning about long range shooting. So really fun to, to get his theories and thoughts on that. Um, so really appreciate having them on the podcast here and, and, uh, it's just fun to have my buddies over and, and, uh, have them over to the house here and come down and, and record for an hour and, and see what comes out as they're all super knowledgeable guys. So, um, just really fun. I've been recording a a lot lately, super excited at some of the guests I've had and getting that out to you guys. So, um, just a really fun platform. Uh, I want to thank Yeti Coolers for sponsoring the podcast. 
Um, again, they're, they're ramblers and tumblers. Their cups are awesome. And then their coolers, you know, I just have my first one now, but it's going to change the way that I adventure hunt on, on, you know, especially when I'm truck camping and that, I'm just going to be able to keep food longer and, and, uh, and keep, uh, uh, elk and deer cold, you know, once I harvest them, keep them in that Yeti. So super excited to get some use out of that. Um, make sure to go check out the Eastman's YouTube channel. Um, you know, there's a bunch of really cool informative stuff on there as well as you can watch hunts and, and link to other things as well. So check out the Eastman's hunting journal, uh, YouTube channel. Um, and with that, uh, if I sound a little tired, I'm running on a few hours sleep here. I'm, I'm trying to get out this podcast. Uh, my buddy Dan harvested a bear last night, spot and stock with his bow, man, just so happy for him. A really nice chocolate. So we're going to go in this morning and get it, but I'm um, just running on a few hours sleep here, but uh, I had to get out my podcast for the week. I'll send it off for approval and, and uh, we're going to get out of the house here and pack that thing out. So super pumped for him. Um, he was on the podcast last week. Um, so, so fun to hear him on the podcast and then uh, watch him harvest a bear like that. So really cool. Uh, so, so with that, I'm gonna, gonna go pack that thing out and, and then, uh, keep after it here and see if I can't get mine and, and keep doing these recordings. Uh, again, just want to thank you guys for all the support. You guys have just been great. I, I love all the positivity on social media and, and, uh, you know, just all the positivity around the podcast. I'm, I'm constantly getting good comments and, and I know my guests are getting comments from you guys when you guys like them and reach out to them and tell them they did a good job on the podcast. And, and these aren't professional podcasters I'm having on, you know, a lot of these guys are, are just my buddies that I talk into, to doing a recording to put out for the world to listen to. And it, it's not the world, but you know, it does make them a little bit nervous and I can see why I've got comfortable with the format now. So I don't get too nervous doing the podcast, but, um, I just, I just really appreciate these guys coming on and sharing information, sharing their secrets and, and tactics to being successful on public land. So, uh, thanks to you guys for, for all the support with the podcast and, and supporting the guests. I really appreciate it. So man, with that, um, We're going to get in there and go pack out that bear. Uh, Hope you guys have a good week. Keep working hard towards your goals and I'll check in with you guys next week.